0: Mortimer. Episode 4. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Apparently, there is some noxious audio device that you are listening to, and it is disturbing my creative process. The 1918 Studebaker coughed as Neville drove it down Charleston Drive, away from the Iscariot Manor. Mrs. Dixon's hands were folded neatly in her lap. Her hair was pulled back meticulously into a classic chignon. By her side sat Mortimer, rigidly dressed in a smart grey suit. A lovely cobalt blue and black bow tie was at his neck. Cap-toe Oxford shoes covered his massive feet, feet which he was tapping nervously. "'Is he going to take us on wayward?' Mortimer declared. "'You know how wayward agitates my digestion.' "'It's all in your head, dearest. Wayward is a fine road. "'The most efficient route into town, I might add.' Mrs. Dixon patted his hand in a gesture intended to soothe. He turned away from her and clenched his jaw obstinately. "'Besides, it is good for your character "'to step out of your comfort zone now and then. "'Remember our training?' "'Trickery has brought me into my present state of peril!' Mrs. Dixon looked toward the heavens. For twenty years she had been Mortimer's caretaker and manager of the Iscariot household. Upon accepting a position with one of the most wealthy and prestigious families on the continent, she had imagined quite a different life. There would be grand balls, beautiful ladies, handsome and chivalrous men, and her young squire would be among the most admired in the land. She would be, of course, considered the luckiest of women in her station, and greatly respected. Mrs. Dixon ran a hand along her hair to smooth it as Neville turned onto Wayward Street. Whoop! She grabbed a hold of the side of the vehicle as they swerved around a particularly deep pothole. Yes, an exciting life, she had imagined, filled with education, intrigue, and then bittersweet tears just sixteen years later, when the young man would fall in love and marry. She'd kiss each cheek of the young couple, give them deep and profound words of wisdom, and then take a big fat check with her back home to Jamaica. Well, things hadn't turned out quite that way. Being a nanny to one of the most illustrious men on the planet had not only placed her in a position of the expected austerity among her social class, but the affiliation with the family had put her at personal risk. They'd been receiving letters blackmailing the Iscariot family for two years. The financial concessions Mrs. Dixon had made kept the threats at bay, but the felon's greed had grown greater and greater, with his last letter demanding more than twice the original sum. She feared that, if they did not continue to meet the culprit's demands, that someone else from the family would be killed, just like Mr. Iscariot. Mrs. Dixon glanced over at Mortimer, who was hanging on to the edge of the car for dear life with his left hand, while his right hand held his captain's hat into place. "'Neville, you tyrant! Stop the car!' "'There's nowhere to pull over!' Neville lied, for this was not an uncommon occurrence. Mortimer was very sensitive to external impressions. Lights, noises, and odours were particularly offensive to him, and anything that had jarred his body could quite effectively put him out of commission for hours. We're almost there, darling. Mrs. Dixon discreetly grasped the handle by her side, forcing her foreboding thoughts away. She cleared her throat. Martima. I'll never recover from the trauma. I shall require an analyst. Martima, I wanted to ask you a question. Mrs. Dixon persisted on. How do you like Miss Longhorn? Dear God! "'You're purposely throwing us into harm's way with your haphazard driving!' Neville contemplated driving the car into the trolley-stop building that was just ahead on their right, but thought better of it and turned onto Market Street instead. "'You see, Martimer, that wasn't so bad.' Mrs. Dixon checked her appearance in the small mirror she'd withdrawn from her satchel. "'Market is a lovely street. The drug-stars just ahead.' "'I shall require a doctor to evaluate my spinal column for abrasions.' "'The last time we went into town and you called the doctor, he said you were fine.' Oh Mortimer bellowed, placing his hand on his lower back. "'I'll call the doctor,' Mrs. Dixon said over his howls. "'Just quiet down. People will hear you.' Mortimer's bushy moustache twitched, and he looked out of the window, away from Mrs. Dixon. "'At least he had stopped yelling. "'Anyway, you were telling me about what you thought of Miss Longhorn.' "'Mortimer seemed to have gone deaf, "'and did not acknowledge that she had spoken. "'Neville glanced back at her over his shoulder. "Uh, "'Where would you like me to stop?' "'People's will be fine,' Mrs. Dixon snapped her purse shut, "'dusted it off, for it had taken a tumble to the floor "'during their trip down wayward. "'Thank you, Neville.' "'Once the car had pulled over and was in park,' Neville got out and went to Mrs. Dixon's side, assisting her to the curb. Mortimer did not wait to be assisted. "'Thank God we made it alive!' his declaration caused people walking down the way to turn and look. "'Mortimer, come here. Fold your hands behind your back and don't touch anything.' Mortimer grimaced, but acquiesced. "'Neville, wait in the car.' "'Neville went back around the Studebaker "'and returned to his station at the helm "'where his paper awaited him. "'Mrs. Dixon led Mortimer into the shop. "'There were rows upon rows of goods, "'some for cooking, "'others were household products, "'and behind the front counter "'were toiletries, medicines, "'and other such things. "'Mrs. Dixon beelined it "'straight to the bath supplies. "'This was one of her indulgences. "'There were few, for she was a modest woman, "'but smooth skin was a non-negotiable must.' George, do you have any new scents in?' Mrs. Dixon set her purse upon the countertop and batted her eyelashes at the elderly fellow opposite her. "'We have a lovely new cream that smells like flowers.' His face wrinkled as he smiled and leaned down to pick up the cylindrical periwinkle glass jar. "'I've sold six jars today. We got the shipment in just last night.' "'That's right. The train came in yesterday,' Mrs. Dixon nodded smartly lifting the jar to her nose and inhaling. From behind her came the sound of toppling boxes and the shriek of a woman. "'Watch what you're doing!' Mortimer roared. "'Your child is a deviant beast!' George winced. Mrs. Dixon turned around. Martima, you clean that up!' "'The affliction that I endure shall not be born!' Mrs. Dixon turned back to George, her cheeks pinked. "'So sorry!' George waved his hand, all politeness. "'Don't worry. My assistant should have cleaned up those shipping boxes long ago. He seems to have disappeared again.' "'What else did the train bring?' Mrs. Dixon changed the subject. "'Ah!' George's eyes sparkled. "'We've got a new shipment of some of the finest cigars from Cuba, for the man in your life.' He winked, displaying the ornately trimmed box. "'Oh, George!' Mrs. Dixon chortled, applying a generous layer of cream to her hands. Tell me, when will you get more of that wonderful Vento di Fiori? Oh, well, we'll have to special order that. He looked over Mrs. Dixon's shoulder. What is he doing? Mrs. Dixon turned to face the direction George had indicated, and to her horror, she saw that Mortimer had built a fort resembling a boat by stacking boxes on top of one another, and then created a roof for the structure with a box that was long and narrow. He was presently on his hands and knees, crawling toward the hole leading inside. To make matters worse, at that very moment there was a ding as the door opened, and a well-dressed woman entered the shop. She wore a lustrous and sleek gown, blended with richly coloured fabrics. Around her neck was a mink scarf, and Diamond earrings twinkled at her earlobes. Her wardrobe resembled the fashion that Mrs. Dixon had seen in her Gazette du Bon Ton magazine, the fancy one from Paris that George had ordered her special the month before. Her throat grew dry, and she felt paralysed as the woman found herself facing Mortimer's rump as it wriggled beneath the tower of boxes. "'My heavens!' she brought a diamond-studded hand to her lips." Two small children came around the corner with their mother, and, upon seeing Mortimer, they rushed to join him on their hands and knees, like ducklings lining up behind a mother duck. "'Susan! Tommy! Get off the floor this instant!' But Tommy was not quick enough, for at that moment a horrible sound came from the posterior side of the man with his head in the box, and projected directly into the boy's smiling and open mouth. By now a crowd had gathered in the store, Mrs. Dixon shrank back toward the side of the counter. Maybe no one would recognize Mortimer. If he could just keep his head hidden until they lost interest. "'What in heaven's name was—' "'Tally-ho!' Mortimer exclaimed, shaking his hindquarters back and forth. "'Mama!' Tommy started choking and coughing, tears running down his face. "'Oh, dearest Tommy, Susan, run outside. Tell Daddy to fetch the doctor.' The woman scooped her youngest up in panic, but the odour had not spared the frantic mother. Her face changed to a jaundiced green colour. Tommy continued gagging and was now in full-blown cry. "'The doctor!' Mrs. Dixon huffed to herself. "'How dramatic!' Someone emerged from the aisle. "'What happened? Did someone die in here?' "'Open the door, quick!' George's voice was urgent. The high-class woman, who had been paralysed in what was most likely horror, suddenly snapped into action obediently, rushing to fling the door wide. Mortimer flopped over, so that now he was lying on his side. Patty asphyxiated on his own methane gas? Mrs. Dixon felt guilty at the thought. Her feelings of guilt soon vanished, however, for Mortimer grunted and flopped around yet again until he was lying on his back. "'A perfect vantage for the underbelly, I do say! A creation of genius!' "'Mrs. Dixon, if you please!' George gave her a pleading look. Mrs. Dixon had shrunk even farther down the aisle, and she looked up sheepishly. "'Who? Me? Oh, can you please take him out of here?' George pressed his hands together as if in prayer." "'Even now I shall have to spend the entire day airing out the place. "'Oh, you do understand?' "'Mrs. Dixon put the mop she had been admiring, (coughs) "'hiding behind, back onto the shelf. "'Of course, George.' "'She forced her head high and moved past several horrified onlookers. "'She knew it wasn't proper, but she just couldn't help herself. "'She kicked Mortimer's foot. "'Get out of there, boy! We are going home!' She did not even wait for the reply, but with every ounce of dignity that she had remaining, she rushed past the beautiful woman and through the door, outside, to where Neville waited in the car. What did he do this time? Neville lowered his paper as Mrs. Dixon climbed inside and slammed the door. She raised the window and turned her head away from the prying eyes of people on the sidewalk. "'A little girl came running outside, "'saying that a man had poisoned her brother "'and that he needed a doctor. "'Oh, Martima! "'Mrs. Dixon put her head in her hands. "'How shall I ever get him married?' "'Married?' "'Yes. "'Mrs. Longhorn had just come in. "'Oh, what shall I do?' "'Mrs. Dixon shook her head "'and suppressed the urge to break into tears. "'He passed, wind under child!' "'Did he?' "'Oh, you should have seen the look on the mother's face.' Mrs. Dixon's expression was forlorn. "'And the child? Oh, I do suppose calling the doctor was a wise choice, even if it was a bit dramatic. "'I've been a victim to that young man's flatulence a time or two. "'I can imagine it was quite disturbing for all.' Quite cheered, Neville folded his paper. "'Where's the young chap now?' "'Attempting to extract himself from his fart, I imagine.' "'Ah, I won't even ask. "'I'm horrified!' "'Come on, Elizabeth,' Neville said, using her Christian name. "'This is not the first time that our Mortimer has embarrassed you.' "'Of course not. "'But he's twenty years old.' "'He'll come around,' Neville encouraged. "'Now, don't worry your pretty little head. "'That lily Lou girl likes him, doesn't she?' "'Yes, but I told you, her mother just witnessed everything.' "'Oh, right,' Neville frowned. Or maybe she didn't know it was him.' "'Everyone knew it was him!' "'At that moment the passenger door flung open, "'and Mortimer climbed into the back seat enthusiastically. "'I shall require binoculars immediately, "'for I've just come to a most outstanding realization!' "'Then, romping Neville on the shoulder, "'Drive, man, to Mendelman's! "'Don't you even know what you just did?' "'Mrs. Dixon was furious.' "'The undercarriage was a most difficult vantage, to be sure. "'The structure I so excellently crafted suited my needs perfectly. "'I don't know why I didn't think of it before. Martima, you passed wind on a child.' "'Of course. "'It shall have to be replicated with a more realistic material.' Martima, you made him cry. "'Why aren't we driving?' "'Neville looked over his shoulder at the fuming Mrs. Dixon.' "'Did you hear me, Mortimer?' Finally, Mortimer's dark eyes shifted in her direction. "'The body's eliminative properties should be respected.' Incensed with a new topic of passion, his voice raised. "'Especially the bowels. As they serve as the primary emunctory to toxic waste, my bowels saved me from true toxicity indeed.' gaseous build-up that occurred in my digestive apparatus, secondary to the torture you two miscreants inflicted upon me by taking the vilest of roads into town. However, thank God, my bowels are now in proper working order. Mortimer raised his finger to punctuate the point. Neville, just drive. Mrs. Dixon sighed and sat back in her seat as Mortimer launched into another tirade that would likely occupy the remainder of the afternoon. The view of the cityscape never became tiresome to the eyes of John Adams Iscariot. He loved the large buildings, busy city streets, and, most of all, the unrelenting, pleasant hum of commerce. He stood at the window, his hands tucked neatly into the front pockets of his pressed, pleated pants, A window-washer hung from a roof of the bank across the street. John leaned closer to the glass, narrowing his eyes, watching the individual spray and wipe, spray and wipe. Such a tedious job, really, thought John. He himself was much better suited for employment of the mind, coming up with ideas, offering directives, heading board meetings, and, of course, the ever-so-essential schmoozing that came with being a man of his prestige. No, he had never been suited for menial existence. Virtually all other lines of work were inferior to his birthright, so inferior, in fact, that the thought of driving a taxi or washing windows or cleaning a floor made John physically ill. He turned away from the window, from the prospect of the city, and went back to his desk to pour a glass of ice-cold water. Perhaps he was a bit of a snob, he admitted to himself as he took a drink. But really, he just couldn't help how he felt. It was in his blood. And beyond that, his ascendancy had been written in the heavens long before he realized his primacy in the world, for his parents, in a gesture of astute prophecy, had named him after the highly esteemed second president of the United States, himself, John Adams. John was the professional man of the century, and very likely the presidency as well. John Adams... The third to carry the name, the second to rule the nation. He'd be the best damn president the country no the world had ever seen. The thought thrilled him to the bone. Inspired by his own musings, as John often was, he opened the top drawer of his desk and removed from inside a clean piece of paper and a pen. He settled down in his prestigious swivel chair and began to write. "'It is with great humility,' that I accept the Presidency of the United States of America. Though I stand here today, it was primarily by my own accord, the hard work, genius, and, of course, constant equanimity. I do yet feel obligated to extend an offering of felicity to the shoulders upon which I stand. My dear late brother comes to mind first, the great Gerard Iscariot. Though he was a man with great ingenuity, and is in part an establisher of the Centennial Shipping Yard, which served as a springboard into my admirable career, he was also a man skewed. Skewed by the dream of immortality many lesser minds find in child-rearing. With a mind thus polluted, he abandoned the growing majesty of the company and suggested his deranged son have a larger part in its workings. At the very least, for his honour, I have endeavoured to and saved the company, among countless others, from disaster. My determination and sacrifice have always been for the greater good, and I believe I have demonstrated that with my life. I know Gerard would be more satisfied with the status of the company now than even in the heights it attained during his reign, or during the short period of tyranny that the company suffered before I was named CEO. And so, dear brother, I thank you for your small token of solicitude. It would behove me to mention as well the dear and most esteemed Mr. Longhorn. For good, sir, had your company not appeared as a direct competitor to the centennial, we might not have been pushed to attain the great heights to which we have since risen. Lastly, but not least, I must take my hat off to the most recent President of the United States, the man who sought my wisdom and befriended me, and who groomed me to eventually— "'Take his place as our nation's leader. "'Thank you, Mr. President.' "'He put the tip of the pen between his lips and surveyed the letter. "'There were a few grammatical errors he could correct later, "'some slight factual extrapolations, too, "'for his brother had actually built the entire company. "'But those details were superfluous, "'before the greater need of conveying how absolutely necessary it had been in the process.' Then there was the small issue of him never having even met the current president. John spun round in his chair to look out over the vast city. That nagging little issue would change soon enough, he told himself. One day in the not-so-distant future, the president would notice his contributions to society, to greatness itself. Only a fool would pass by such a mind and not give it a second look. "'Yes, Mr. President,' "'John stood up and extended his hand into the air. "'I forgive you for the delay. "'I know there are many people trying to occupy your time. "'I trust, however, that it will not happen again. "'Who are you talking to?' "'John spun around to see the curly orange bob of his secretary, Mrs. Peach. "'His ears flushed a deep shade of red, and he straightened his suit jacket. "'Have we not discussed that you are supposed to knock first before entering?' "'Why, I heard voices. How was I supposed to know that you'd hear me knock?' "'She was chewing gum, hip cocked to the side. "'Anyway, you're late for the board meeting. Anderson sent me to fetch you.' "'Blast!' John looked at his watch. He'd been so caught up in his musings that he was indeed late, again. He snatched the leather briefcase from beneath his desk. "'You also got a call from your doctor.' Mrs. Peach flipped through the pink note-cards. He said that there are some more taps for your digestion down at the dispensary. I'll take these. John grabbed the notes from Mrs. Peach as he zipped past her, his ears burning like molten lava. He hurried down to the end of the hall and turned left. He scurried past the bullpen of desks, swerved around corners, and pushed past anyone walking annoyingly slow. After another turn, he came to a long hallway along the north side of the building, Outside the door, he straightened his tie and took a deep breath. The shipment is due to arrive in West Virginia in three days. Weather seems to be holding up well. uh, There's no reason to expect a delay. Well, Bowman has threatened to pull his contract with us if we have another late shipment. John attempted to will himself invisible as he slinked to his chair along the massive table. There was a neat stack of papers in his spot, including an agenda list and task items, financials and "'different things that were to be discussed at the meeting. "'You can send him a message today that the shipment will be there.' "'It had better be there.' "'The second nodded his balding head "'and then hunched over to scribble a note onto his pad of paper. "'A thin man in a smart grey suit "'shot John a look out of the corner of his eye. "'John glanced over at his companion, "'reaching out to take the note that was on the desk in front of them. "'It read, Ellie. "'John jerked his head in a discreet, "'No.' John, I'm glad you could join us. Mr. Wolfenstein, the interim president, glared at John from the end of the desk. He was wearing a perfectly pressed black suit. A golden pin in the shape of a Centennial shipping logo was attached to his lapel. He squinted at John now through thick-rimmed glasses. John's face burned. "Uh, Yes, uh, Mr. Wolfenstein, (laughs) I was in the middle of a very important correspondence. Passing notes, are we? Uh, "'No, no, no, of course not, sir.' "'With whom were you corresponding?' All of the men around the table were looking at John. "'I I don't want to waste the committee's time with such matters.' John reached up and adjusted his tie, finding it suddenly scalding hot in the office. "'I I have it under control, sir.' "'Why expect that any and all correspondents come to my desk first? The old man leaned forward. "'As temporary president of the company, I expect to remain informed.' Uh, yeah, uh, "'Of course, uh, John thought he might be sick. He loosened his tie a bit more. Mr. Wolfenstein leaned back in his chair, picking up his pen again. Um, "'What is the update on the Esquire?' At John's hesitation, he looked up from his legal pad. "'John?' John started, caught by surprise. As his brain regained normal functioning, he searched through the papers on the table in front of him. Um, uh, yes, sir, yes, yes. I, I, I have it here, sir. He reached down and fumbled with his briefcase. The report was in there, somewhere. He pulled out a stack of documents. Don't worry, we'll all wait while you search. John started to sweat as the room grew silent again. Some of the men took a drink from tumblers dotting the conference table. Others shifted in their chairs, "'while most stared out of the window at their own reports. "'Finally, John came to the piece of paper he was looking for. "'Ah, here it is!' "'He hated the way he sounded, like a big sissy. "'He smoothed out the paper and set the briefcase back on the floor. "'And let me see here,' he squinted at the page. "'It was a crumpled mess. "'A cup stain was on the top corner.' The Esquira hm she arrived in Georgetown seven weeks ago and has been open for tours every day but Sundarp Sundarp ah uh, John's ears were scalding hot sun Sunday, Sunday he grinned sheepishly <laughs> the page had a smudge. His colleague stared back at him without amusement. He swallowed and went on. Um, the the, uh, the profits coming from the tours and knick have gone up by 20% in the last two weeks. John looked up. That's great news. What about the crew and cargo? Oh, we've a crew all set to go. Now, I'm not sure on the captain yet. There's another ship leaving for Africa on the same day. And, and the captains are fighting over who goes to Cuba and, and who to Africa. They're fighting? Mr. Wolfenstein's face hardened. Um, if I may jump in, a young man spoke up from the opposite end of the table. The ship Mr. Iscariot speaks of is owned by the Longhorn Foundation. Uh, the cruise to Africa is a small safari that is primarily being populated by researchers. However, uh, contract negotiations were completed weeks ago. Uh, a breach would result in a revocation of the agreement between both parties, uh, captains and crews rendering both ships unable to sail. I'm certain we can bring this issue to an end fairly easily. I doubt Longhorn wants to abdicate based on unscrupulous behaviour of two captains. Um, I'll take care of it personally, sir. John glowered at the smug young man receiving his nod of approval from Mr. Wolfenstein. Moving on. Uh, One more thing, Mr. Wolfenstein. John raised his hand. Yes, John... "'I was thinking that I'd like to have more responsibility given to me in the company, "'considering I'm the third in line for ownership,' John added to himself. Oh, I think Nick Max is right up your alley,' Mr. Wolfenstein waved dismissively. "'You'll stay where you are,' he looked away. "'Mr. Frankold, I need an update on financials.' John glowered at the old man. "'taking over his brother's business, making the calls, "'dictating his will in a reign of tyranny over the others. "'John just couldn't stand for it. "'Mr. Wolfenstein was old, his ideas were outdated, "'and he had no innovation. "'Meanwhile John exuded innovation. "'He was the future of the company. "'Without his brilliance, the company was sure to fail. "'It burned him to the core to see that smug ass at the end of the table, "'in his late brother's position.' "'dueling out orders like some monarch.' "'A note appeared in front of him again. "'Did you see her?' "'John slid the note discreetly under his stack of papers. "'For a long time now, "'Anderson had been enamoured with John's sister-in-law, Ellie. they had met fifteen years ago "'when Gerard had transferred his family to Georgetown from Chicago "'to manage the company locally. "'With him he had brought his young and beautiful wife, "'their odd, somewhat bumbling son,' And a sassy Jamaican nanny. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022 MW Cedars. Written by MW Cedars, the author's pseudonym. Audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.